No. There we go. Now I hear it. All right. Uh, let me get rolling here. Waking the dead. Um, it seems to me <clears throat> that Hollywood villains come in different waves. A few years ago, it seemed like all of the villains in the movies were aliens. Right? Remember this? We still see it every now and then, but the villains are always aliens. They're from another planet, and they're very, very scary. And then there was a whole period of time where it was vampires and werewolves. And I walked into Barnes & Noble one time, and above the sections of the books, there's a genre title. So there's travel, and there's cooking, and there's self-help, and apparently also now it's a thing to have teen paranormal romance. What? What is that? I don't even know what that is. But apparently it's a thing. And there's a genre of books that are called that. So if you remember, I guess, Twilight, that's kind of what spawned all of that. Anyway, so teen paranormal romance. What do you know? I learn something new every day. Recently, however, it seems to be uh, the villains are zombies. And I know this is a thing because my neighbor has a little sticker on the back of his truck saying that he's, he's got a permit to be a zombie hunter. No, it's a thing. Seriously, it's a little, pla little sticker that goes on the back of his thing, and it has the date on it and everything. Now, I don't know who he paid for that, <laughs> but, but apparently if we have the zombie apocalypse, my neighborhood is safe because my, my neighbor down the street is, is, is legal to hunt zombies with all classes of firearms. And he has them, by the way, I guess. I mean, so anyway, so zombies. We're in this series called Waking the Dead, and uh, just full transparency here, it is a blatant attempt to, to uh, tie into the Halloween <laughs> season because there's all kinds of zombies. We were at um, uh, an event on Friday night, and there were a couple of people walking around dressed as zombies, handing out uh, uh, advertisements to some type of zombie event. I don't know what it was, but something that was going on downtown, and I'm like, this is a thing? Yeah, apparently it's a thing, so anyway. So waking the dead, and um, to be fair, it, it's not just the Halloween thing, but it's coming out of some of my own observations that I've noticed about people in general, and frankly, noticed about myself, and just that there are parts of my life that don't seem as full of life as others. <clears throat> And we want to talk about this idea of, of waking the dead because I think that this is something that Jesus asks us to do, to join him in that process of waking people up to a new spiritual kind of a reality. And there's one passage in particular that seems very fitting. Now, I'm going to tell you a brief story. Um, this week, uh, I've, I've had several ideas related to this idea of waking the dead, but earlier this week, I felt like um, there was a, a message that I preached a few years ago that I probably should preach again because it kind of fit with this. And I thought, no, 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 no. I want to create something new. I want to, you know, you know, this is art, and I wanted to, to do something like that. <clears throat> and I got to, to Friday night, and I had nothing, just nothing. So I went to the office on Saturday, and I'm working through it. I think I started the sermon six times, and at one point I took my paper I crumpled it up and I threw it in the wastebasket. So I'm like, I'm bored writing it. <laughs> I can't even imagine what. So I call my wife, right? And my wife says to me, you know what? There was that message series that you did a couple years ago that would fit perfectly with this. 
Shut up, Lisa. <laughs> Sometimes the voice of God sounds remarkably like my wife. I, I, don't, know, I don't know how that happens, but it just, it's amazing. So, um, so there's this passage in, in, in the Old Testament that we really need to read. And if you have a Bible, um, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. And uh, I'm going to read part of the story this week, and I think I'm going to read the rest of it next week. So um, bear with me here. We're going to kind of pick this passage apart. And, and if you've been uh, in the church at all, if you've grown up, this is the passage that's often referred to as the Valley of Dry Bones. And you can kind of see where this is going, waking the dead, okay? So there's a connection here. But um, before we, we, we really get into the passage, there's a couple of things that I need to make sure that uh, we've got our minds around, that we've, we've, we have uh, an understanding of. And the first, the first part of it here is that Ezekiel serves a very specific role in the nation of Israel. He is a prophet. And sometimes this idea of prophet uh, carries with it certain... Um, certain ideas that we get from literature and movies and fiction, and, and I, wanna, I want you to understand what an Old Testament prophet actually is. It is, in the most basic sense, the person who God chooses to speak for him to the people. Now, now please understand, this is not something that they choose. This is somebody that God chooses. God chooses a prophet to speak for him to the people. And there might be multiple prophets, uh, and in fact, we find that in the scriptures. But typically speaking, there is one particular prophet who, I don't know if you call him the chief prophet, that wasn't the name of it, but there was one who kind of dominated the scene, and there are books named after them, and Ezekiel happens to be one of them. And an Old Testament prophet is, uh, is, is a high office. In fact, in some ways, it is equal to or exceeds the power of the king. And, and if he's speaking for God, you can, you can understand where... Um, he's often in trouble with the upper class, with the aristocrats. It, it happens quite a bit. Prophecy, what a prophet actually does, uh, we tend to think in terms of the future, predicts the future, right? But an Old Testament prophet has a slightly different role. First of all, because he speaks for God, one of the things that he does over and over and over within the scripture is to call people back to God calls people back to relationship. Don't forget, you have a covenant with God. Come back to it. Don't forsake it. Come back to God. Inviting them back into the relationship with God. We see this constantly throughout the text where the Old Testament prophet is calling Israel back to the relationship with God. And does the prophet speak about the future? The answer is yes, but there's one little nuance that's very important. A biblical prophet talks about what God is going to do in the future. Not just what the future holds, but what God's going to do in the future. And very often, that includes calling people back to the relationship. Okay? So keep that in mind, that it's a very specific thing, and that over time and, and through you know, various uh, media sources and whatnot, we've, we've, we've kind of improved impregnated that word with some things that aren't necessarily there. So an Old Testament prophet really calls people back to God and talks about what God's going to do in the future, not just future events, but rather what God is going to do. 
And so we have this book called Ezekiel, which is really a series of visions. A series of visions and a series of words that God wants Ezekiel to speak to the nation of Israel, and they include both warnings and hope, both of them. It's a very pivotal, pivotal moment in the life of, of Israel. And in fact, um, Ezekiel himself um, prophesied probably around 600 B.C. and actually witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem and the complete uh, um, destruction of the temple that was in Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. Okay, so 586 B.C. is when all of this occurred, and it was about that time frame that Ezekiel was prophesying. So not only did he prophesy trying to call people back to God, but he actually saw what happened when they didn't. So imagine that. There's a lot of, a lot of emotion, a lot of pressure, and, and he's feeling this because he gets to see all of it. So keep all of that in mind. I think that's, those are important factors as we go through this. And so what I want to do is I want to read part of um, the, one of these visions in chapter 37. And in the process, um, I think we're going to um, get a glimpse into the heart of God. And I'm going to offer some thoughts as we, as we kind of go along. So let me just read this, and then I'm going to pick it apart a little bit. Um, verse thir- uh, chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Now, Let's hit the pause button right there because we need to explain some things that are, that are going on in these first three verses because this is just chock full of some pretty significant things we need to talk about. First and foremost is that we see here that he says, the hand of the Lord was on me. Now, the hand of the Lord, uh, when we read this in Scripture, is very often a signal that God is going to do or God is going to say something when the hand of the Lord is upon, uh, upon someone. Very often, the hand of the Lord refers to the wrath of God. The hand of the Lord moved against the Egyptians, right? Uh, you can see this. It's some type of action the Lord's going to do. It may be a blessing. The hand of the Lord was upon them as a blessing. And sometimes it signals that there's going to be a divine utterance, as the case is right here. But this idea of the hand of the Lord is actually fairly unique to Ezekiel. Even if you go into verse 38, um, he'll say, the word of the Lord came to me. Not the hand of the Lord was on me. The word of the Lord came to me. Most of the time, when, when God is ready to speak through his prophets, it'll say, the word of the Lord came to the prophet so-and-so. But in Hebrew, it's a much stronger term. The word of the Lord overcame the prophet. It got to be to a point where God was going to speak and this prophet could not help but actually speak the words. Overcame them. Does that make sense? So we have this unique phrase here where it says, the hand of the Lord was on me. Ezekiel's saying this, the hand of the Lord was on me, which is a signal that God's about ready to do something about ready to say something. Now, secondly, in this first, first verse, it says, by the Spirit. 
he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord. So what we can infer from this is that what he is going to witness next is a vision. We actually see the similar turn of a phrase in the New Testament in the book of Revelation when John is taken up into the throne room of heaven by the Spirit of the Lord. And so he gets a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. And in this case, we have the same idea that the hand of the Lord was upon Ezekiel and was brought, uh, brought out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set him in the middle of the valley. Okay? Does that make sense? So this is a vision. So if you're, if you're thinking, okay, there's an actual valley where a bunch of people had died and there's a bunch of bones, mm-mm, that's not, that's not the point. The point is this is a vision. God is showing him something. There's something that's going on here. And then finally, he said, set him in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Okay, set him in the middle of a valley. It's a morbid kind of picture, isn't it? I mean, think about this. There's a, a valley, and I don't know how big the valley is, Uh, But it's a valley, and it's full of bones. Now, I think it's significant that he's actually using the word valley here, and let me explain explain why I I believe that. Valleys are human places. Valleys are very human places. In the Old Testament, when you went to worship, you would go up on a mountain. In fact, they were called high places. And you would often um, worship idols there go up to the high place to worship Baal, who was a mountain god, and Asherah, his wife. They were in high places. In fact, the temple of the Lord was on Mount, do you know it? Zion, which is the highest point of the city of Jerusalem. Mountains and high places are spiritual. Valleys are human places. Does that make sense? So here we have this image of of God giving him this vision in a valley. It is very significant that he chooses valley because it's a very human place. It's not a spiritual place. It's a human place. It's very earthly. So this vision is in a valley. And then we see this idea about bones. It's full of bones. And in verse 2, he begins to describe the bones. Here it is. He, meaning God, led me, meaning Ezekiel, back and forth among them. And you kind of got this idea of, you know, kind of showing him, you know, What's going on? And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. So we know that uh, he moved among them. We know that there was a whole lot of them, and we know that they're very dry. Now, this is important as well. These details within the vision, there's a lot of them. It's on the floor of of the valley, and you, you almost have the sense that they're strewn about. There's just, there's, it's not like there's a skeleton here and a skeleton there, but they're just bones everywhere. And there's no order to them. They're just kind of haphazard, kind of uh, chaotic almost. <clears throat> and the vo- bones were dry. Now, this is also significant. Why would he notice that? Well, they've been there for a while. That's the impression. They've been there for a while. The people that were there were unrecognizable. He has no idea who these folks were. And you kind of get the sense when you're reading through this that they're also brittle and they're decaying, as bones are happen to do, right? So we have these very specific details about where this vision is and what he was actually looking at. Now, we have to stop because I think it's really helpful at this point 
to understand Jewish funeral rites, burial customs in ancient Israel. It's important to know this because I think it helps us understand the scene. When we read this through 21st century eyes, it's very different than what a Jew in the you know, latter part of the before Christ's would actually read, okay? So we have to understand really how, uh, how it was received by the, the original audience in order for us to understand what it might mean for us. So let's, let's talk about this because when we open the Bible, we're going to a different culture. We're going to a different time and a different place. And I've mentioned this before, that every time we open the Bible, we're tourists. We don't necessarily understand all of those customs that went on. It'd be the same thing as if we got on a plane and went to somewhere in Africa. There are certain customs and norms for that people group that we're not necessarily going to understand, and so we need to educate ourselves. And so we're tourists here. First of all, um, if, we, if you um, uh, go into the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Numbers, chapter 19, one of the things that you learn is that dead bodies were considered unclean. Makes sense, right? So, consequently, if you come in contact with a dead body, or bones in this case, you are considered unclean. And unclean means, bottom line, you are unfit for worship. You are not allowed into the temple to offer sacrifices to commune with God because you are ritualistically, ceremonially unclean because you have touched something that is dead. Unfit for worship. In fact, you're unclean for seven days, by the way. It's very specific. And there were certain rituals that you had to do in order to become clean so you could go back into the temple. So when somebody died and they prepared the body, it's a big deal for them to do that because they were going to be unclean for seven days. Does that make sense? So there's very strict, very specific uh, laws and regulations regarding dead bodies. Now I want you to notice something. This is very important. We are here in a very earthly place with a bunch of dead bodies. Ezekiel is there he is now ritualistic unclean because he's in the presence of the dead bodies. And yet who's with him? God. God brought him there to that unholy place. If there is no other good news today, is that there is no place that is so dark, so dark, desolate, so desperate that God won't go there. In our theological tradition, we believe in something called pervenient grace that means God's spirit is always everywhere nudging people, sometimes nanometer by nanometer towards, towards God, towards Jesus. It doesn't matter the place. It doesn't matter the darkness. It doesn't matter the desolation. God is there, and he's willing to go there with you. Good, now we can all go home, because that's just good news, right? <laughs> Not quite. The second thing here that's really interesting is, is you've got to understand a little bit about Jewish tombs. So um, because of the way the landscape was, you can't really bury bodies because it's very rocky. <clears throat> 
And so what they would do is they would cut caves into the side of, the, of, of hills and whatnot, and then inside those caves, they would cut shelves along the walls. And so when a person died in a family, they were taken to a family tomb, and they were prepared in a specific way, certain spices and whatnot, and the body was allowed to decompose. And after a certain period of time, they would gather up the bones and set them on the shelves. Sometimes, later on, they would actually put them in a small stone box called an ossuary, okay? There's a, a term that sometimes you hear in the Old Testament where when someone dies and his bones were gathered to his father. That's describing this custom, to allow them to decompose and to be brought and to be put next to all of the other relatives, right? Uncle Hank is over here and, and cousin Phil is over there and you know they're all in one spot so that you could remember them. There's a certain order to it. There's a certain amount of honoring of the dead and the lives that they actually, they actually led. The final step was always the bones are gathered. Now, we would call that being dead and buried, right? We have certain rituals that we do as well, but based on our landscape, it looks a little bit different. But we understand this, this way of honoring the dead. However, it is absolutely essential to understand this idea of the tomb and the bones and the uncleanliness in order to understand the significance of the next question, okay? Here it is. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? Can they live? If you are a Jew, the answer is no way. Game over. They can't live again. That is illogical. It is absurd to even ask that question. By the way, if God asks you an absurd question, look out. Okay? And look how he, look how he answers. I love this. He says, Oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Great answer. It's the safe answer. If God asks you an absurd, absurd question, make sure you defer back to him and just say, Okay, you know, you tell me because I know what I think, right? This is an absurd question if you are a, if you are a Jew. And, in, and he, he does this because if you, if you consider the picture as a whole, and I, and I want you to do that, if you consider the picture as a whole, you have a group of bones, people who have died. Their bones are scattered they did not receive any of the ritual rites. Their bones cannot be gathered to their fathers. They cannot be honored because they're unidentifiable. No matter what kind of life they led, there's no way that they can understand or honor them in death. This is the most bleak picture that a Jew could possibly imagine. In fact, if you were a Jew at that time frame and you were reading this, it would take your breath away. This is a picture of absolute, complete, and utter hopelessness. Absolutely 
hopeless. Can't honor their lives because I can't identify them in their death. And the next step is just dust. This is annihilation. This is obliteration. This is the worst possible circumstances that a Jew could think about. And here's God saying, can they live? <laughs> it's a powerful, powerful picture that we see here. They are unnamed and they are not remembered. And yet, Ezekiel is with God in that forsaken place. And we know that all of this picture is going somewhere, isn't it? Because otherwise, why would God bring him here? Why would God take him to that place? Why would he show him those things? Why would he ask him that question of all things if he didn't have something in mind? This is going somewhere. And here's the thing. Here's the thing that I want you to remember. If you forget everything else that I talked about today, if the history lesson was, was too much for you, here's the thing that I want to awaken inside of you. This is the thing that I want to shape your discipleship. It's simply this. Your hopelessness is God's opportunity. Bottom line, your hopelessness is God's opportunity. And very often, God will allow you into that place in order to show you what he can do in that opportunity. And that sounds like good news to me. It sounds like great news to me. The problem is, is you've got to go through the hopelessness, and that ain't fun, right? <laughs> None of us like to do that part, but your hopelessness is God's opportunity. And I want you to see that. That this opening three verses is about God doing something in the midst of hopelessness. So here's a question for all of you today. Where is it for you? Where is it for you? Where is that moment of hopelessness? Maybe it's something that's going on in your family right now. They're never going to change. No, probably not. Or maybe it's at work. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, people are shifting a little uncomfortably on that one, right? Maybe it's something that's going on in your neighborhood. What's hopeless? What's that place where you're just kind of shaking your head going, I don't see any way out of this? Maybe it's something going on at church. Maybe it's something that's going on in a relationship. Maybe and the list goes on and on and on. Maybe it's something that you've been wrestling with for so long. What is it for you? What's hopeless? Where do you see in your life bones scattered? Where do you see the next step as dust? Where do you see the unidentifiable, the hopelessness beyond hopelessness? Where do you see it? Let me ask you, can those bones live?